This episode's community partner is the Council to Homeless Persons, whose representative Kate Colvin spoke at our recent conference. The Council is the peak body for the Victorian homelessness sector, and its mission is to end homelessness through policy and campaigning. Right now, it's working with Christine Thurkell, a woman who has had multiple experiences of homelessness, to launch a petition calling for 100,000 new affordable homes. We strongly encourage you to sign it at endthehousingcrisis.org.au slash 100k homes. And we'll put that link on our podcast website. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. I'm your host, Marius Smith, the manager of the centre. I'm Sarah Joseph, the director of the centre. I'm Melissa Caston, the other person here. And it's fantastic to be joining you live from uh, our conference today at Federation Square. No. Okay. Mm. So, <laughs> I was well, even going to add some uh, fake applause to try and get us. Uh, unfortunately, uh, at our conference on the 21st of July, we ran a little bit behind time. And as a result, uh, we made up time at the end by dropping our live podcast. So today, uh, instead, we're going to have a little wrap up of the main themes of the day before moving on to two hot topics in Australia right now. The marriage equality debate and the free speech of public servants. And of course, we'll finish off with our human rights hero or villain of the week. And did you see that? Where we talk up about one thing that's caught our attention, whether human rights or otherwise. So it was a pretty amazing day at our conference as usual. We trended number one on Twitter in Australia again, which <laughs> is very important to me. <laughs> and from a vibe point of view, there's always one or more speakers who really galvanise the audience each year. Melissa, what was your emotional highlight of the day? Oh, look, it's so hard to choose, Marius. <laughs> All the speeches were excellent. And I thought the audience was really... Everyone got a star? Well, yeah, no, no. Yes, <laughs> everyone gets a prize at our conference. And, and June Oscar's talk was fantastic and people were sitting there riveted. But I do have to give the award to John Lawrence from the Northern Territory, who's been representing uh, clients uh, in the Royal Commission up there, who really gave us a bit of a kick up the backside in terms of what is it that we as lawyers and human rights advocates are doing in face of Australia's increasing oh, what degradation into a very bad place. Mm. And, and I thought that people were sitting there, and certainly from the tweets, um, not that the conference is all about the tweets, but <laughs> that's kind of one gauge. Uh, it got a huge reaction from people and people afterwards really quite moved by what he had to say. And that picture of, of the child in the chair, you know, that, mm. that with the hood locked up in a, in a prison was very moving. Mm. And he had that over the top the whole time he was speaking. Yeah, I'd have to agree. John Lawrence made, you know, it, it was, he... He definitely used that picture to illustrate everything he was saying and, and, you know, to illustrate, if you like, everything that's kind of wrong in Australia at the moment. And it was a very, very powerful use of that image, mm. uh, which I should say he also had permission to use. Yeah. Um, uh, just on that, Johnny Lawrence, it's probably a good time to mention it. Um, in the days afterwards, Melissa, you caught up with him to have uh, a short interview to kind of tease out some of those themes. And that interview is directly behind this one in the podcast feed. Um, Sarah, what was your highlight? Oh, look, once again, that's that's a very... It, look, it's a very difficult question, but mm. look, I'll probably... I'll, I'll give a shout-out to our very first speaker, Andrew Denton. Uh, first of all, because he was very much on time. 
I have to say that the very first session of the conference can be stressful when you're waiting for your speaker. So thanks a lot for that. I should also uh, look from all of us at the Caston Centre, send him some very good wishes because, uh, look, he has since been unwell and so we wish him a very speedy and full recovery. But he gave a very, very moving talk um, on uh, on what's about to become probably the biggest, uh, the biggest issue, the biggest legal issue, the biggest moral issue in Victoria, which is the issue of a sister dying um, and the uh, impending legislation. So I would, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mention Andrew Denton, but, uh, you know, again, it's very difficult to choose amongst all the great speakers. I, I have to say some of the questions that came after his talk were, were really spot on and very powerful themselves. And hearing from people who worked in, in palliative care, who worked in nursing and health, and even people who had been affected by what very serious illness spoke so personally in mm. front of such a big audience. And remember, they hadn't prepared to do that. They'd just come along to a conference expecting to hear a series of talks. And then people really bared their souls. Yeah, which, um, which is great. Which is great that people felt comfortable and able to do that. We learnt from them and um, it, it all add, added to the vibe of the day. I have to say I'm always very proud of the vibe at the Caston Centre Conference. Yeah, and I think one, one good thing we do is after lunch we always put on our international keynote speaker and, and this year my, you know, my highlight was Kevin Miles who I got to hang around with all week and listen to on radio interviews and various events we set up for him. And um, I mean, he, he's a guy who, you know, has kind of lived the discrimination that he now fights to, to address. Um, he told some really moving stories about his own personal interactions with the police as a child. Um, and even current, current stories of being pulled over by the police mm. and just thinking, is this, is this the moment? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He, um, you know, it, you know he, he, and he talked to me too about um, just the experience of walking down the street you know, in America and having people just cross the sidewalk, you know, this, you know, this really, you know, amazing man, um, you know, who has these, these kind of experiences of discrimination every day as a black man in America. And he just conveyed that really powerfully in his conference speech and um, in all of the other um, events that he did that week. Um, and it's probably a good time also to mention that all of our but full speeches from the conference are up on the Caston Centre's YouTube channel. So, you basically um, search for Caston Centre YouTube and you'll get there. So what we noticed, um, perhaps more than in previous years, was that re some really strong themes ran through the conference and perhaps none more so than the issue of fear and demonisation. And by that I mean principally the process by which our governments use um, fear to justify breaches of people's rights. Fears of particular groups like um, racial minorities or homeless people or terrorists, drug users, also just fear of change, fear of otherness. Sarah, um, I know you've had plenty of thoughts about this theme over the course of the day. Can you just give us, have a chat about it? Yeah, well, I would agree. That came up in a lot of the talks, uh, you know, starting with the first speaker, Andrew Denton, spoke about um, how opponents of uh, voluntary assisted dying will use what he called FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty and doubt. Um, but uh, that's what he says, you know, the opponents of euthanasia pedal. Uh, we had another speaker, Kate Colvin, talking about how, you know, homeless people have really been dehumanised and targeted by, uh, particularly in Victoria, the Herald Sun this year. Uh, Kevin Miles, who you were just talking about, he, you know, spoke very movingly of uh, some of the victims in the United States. Uh, for example, Trayvon Martin, um, who was uh, who was murdered, uh, well, murdered many, uh, a few years ago, who was simply a child buying candy, who was killed by an armed adult. But 
you know, how the narrative around him and around a lot of the victims is simply, look, they must have done something wrong. Mm. They might be unarmed, there might be video where we can see they're doing nothing wrong, and yet there is this assumption that they are, in fact, doing something wrong and something which somehow um, led, led to their deaths. Uh, I think one of the great quotes of the day was Kevin Miles. Uh, I think at this point he was talking about Donald Trump when he said, you know, if you blow a dog whistle long enough, eventually a dog is going to turn mm. up. I think there were two kind of themes within this one. One is that the fear of different groups. And um, so obviously Kevin talked about that, but, but a number of our other speakers did too. And for instance, Kate Colvin talked about it in the, in the context of homelessness. Um, and then um, Kate Sears spoke about it in the terms of drug users. You know, groups who are ostracized in some way from society in all sorts of different ways. And their differences used against them mm. um, to to fulminate, you know, to, to ferment. Sorry, to ferment fear um, and and a lack of understanding that stops your ability to empathise with people, and and often also pushes all of the guilt, so to speak, for the situation therein onto those people. So you're not, you're not saying blame the victim, are you? No. <laughs> well, well, Kate Colvin specifically mentioned an example when she kind of. Uh, highlighted the Herald Sun's role in demonising uh, people sleeping rough on the streets of Melbourne so as to get them moved on, get the Melbourne City Council to change its bylaws. Mm. And I think it's really amazing all of the ways in which um, people's otherness, people's um, difference um, from race to gender to, to often economic circumstances used against them. I'm sure. So, Marius, that really brings us to another theme that kind of came out, which was this idea of intersectionality and where you're getting overlap and cutting across the different issues of social status or discrimination or identity. And I guess in human rights terms, we tend to construct things in our usual legalistic way of categorisations of different laws for different categories of uh, issues. But, you know, really, we have to look, when, when we look at individuals and groups, there's we have to acknowledge that there's going to be this cutting across or overlapping systems of disadvantage and discrimination. So it's not just about homelessness per se, it's homelessness and how it's impacting women who are disadvantaged by structural issues in the financial economic system. Yep. And I know that um, Kate Colvin mentioned that 44% of homeless people are women. There's issues around why women have come into that situation of homelessness. Yeah, and another example was given by Kate Sear when she said that Australia actually has very good needle exchange programs, but not where they're most needed, which is in prison. And so there you have the internet intersection between drug users and people and prisoners. John Lawrence also raised the issue of children that are incarcerated, and we talk about Dondale and these other places where, where children are, are locked up. But he said 99% of the children that are locked up are Aboriginal children. Mm. It's not just that they're children, they're Aboriginal children. There's something much more going on than just this kind of categorisation of crime and punishment. Mm. There's, there's racism cutting into this as well. Yeah, so there's, um, there's so these things get very complex in many ways. I mean, Jan Breckenridge, when she was speaking about um, institutional child sex abuse, um, you know, mentioned that you know, particular groups such as um, Indigenous children and children with a disability um, were shown to be really vulnerable to abuse in different settings. So it shows the complex ways that, that human rights interact, you know, with each other and, and that people's different, you know, um, statuses, different um, races, different economic circumstances often interact with each other to make people particularly vulnerable. 
which also came out in the talk of Jean Alain on modern slavery. One of the other themes that ran through the conference was um, violence, which is closely linked to fear and, you know, the, the generation of fear and then um, it's violence is often what we do in response to that fear. So both John Os- June Oscar and Johnny Lawrence talked about the terrible violence and abuse of children in detention. Um, and I thought it was very powerful when Johnny said, pointing to that picture of Dylan Voller that you talked about before, um, Melissa, in the chair and hooded. Someone ordered the chair, someone designed it, mm. and someone decided to use it on a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... I think that we really do have a problem with the institutional use of violence. Mm. Um, It's been justified often on the grounds of protecting rights or saving lives. So our colleague Kate Sear, um, in her talk on drugs, referenced the Philippines, where the explicit policy of the government is to end the scourge of drugs by killing people. Um, Donald Trump recently joked to a group of police officers that they should rough up people Mm -hmm. um, when they're arresting them. Kevin Rudd explicitly opened Manus Island to create a a dystopia for Mm. asylum seekers as a way of justifying on the grounds of ending the drowning of innocent people. And we saw that. I mean, it's been reiterated even recently in, in Malcolm Turnbull's. Yeah. phone call with Trump. That's right. Which yeah, which came out said. very recently. It's That's right. So, you know, is it just me or are we seeing an escalation of the use of force, the use of violence, the use of cruel treatment as a way of controlling people? Yeah, I think we absolutely are. I think it's, I think it's scaled up. I think that, that it leverages a fear because a response to fear is, you know, fight or flight. So if we can't, you know, if we can't run away, you use violence. And that violent metaphor is very apt at making people feel like we can do something you know because you can hit out or lash out or lock up or whatever it is and i think that it is very very dangerous discourse and it brings us sort of into um into the issue that often these responses these the these institutional responses or these governmental responses are legalized and i think another thing that ran through the conference for the day was the importance of law both as a tool, so not just kind of, you know, values, but the importance of law as mm. both a tool for um, protecting rights and also a way of ultimately harming them. Yeah, well, certainly Kevin Miles uh, spoke about the Stand Your Ground law, and uh, he also spoke about that in the podcast he did with us, um, if people are more interested in, in finding out more about that. Uh, we've got new laws um, regarding moving homeless people on in Victoria or in uh, Melbourne City. We've got an impending new law with regard to voluntary assisted dying, which may or may not come in. Uh, we've got, um, you know, and Kate Sear sort of said the single most significant factor contributing to drug harms is, you know, prohibition itself is, you know, is in fact law. Uh, and then with Jean Alain, I mean, on the horizon may in fact be a modern slavery act here in Australia um, modelled perhaps on the one in the UK. So it was, um, uh, and then, you know, uh, with Jan Breckenridge, who spoke about child abuse, uh, we we will see what sort of legislative responses might come out to the Royal Commission. Mm. Finally, something that came up repeatedly during the day was a single question, what can we do? Not surprisingly, um, probably the answers from most of our speakers boiled down to get off your bum and do something. but what were some of the things that were raised during the day um, about the way that people can get involved to make human rights you know, stronger in this country? Well, Andrew Denton made the point that, um, that one Victorian politician said he'd received 30 anti-euthanasia letters and one pro-euthanasia. And I think that's quite apt because often it's, it feels like if you're 
satisfied with a particular situation, you don't respond. And if you're unsatisfied with a situation, if you do respond, it takes something additional to activate you. So if you see something that you actually have a view on, it is actually worth contacting politicians, whether writing or phoning their office even, and they do take it quite seriously. I mean, they do, they do track the numbers of people that are responding to public issues. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, on that particular issue, it comes back to what we mentioned earlier under fear, and that more generalised fear, um, rather than specific fear of a group, of fear of what fear, uncertainty and doubt, was mm. that what, what that was, you know, just sowing general fear that if you change the law in this way, in regards to euthanasia, but often in many other ways, like we've seen this in the past with campaigns for the Human Rights Act, you're going to unleash all of these bad things that we don't want to happen. And it's very easy to use that fear to stop legislative change from happening. Mm. And when that's combined with this politician getting 30 letters, mm. you know, against the proposed change and one in favour, it, it does make change really difficult. I think uh, the key takeout here is um, just the idea that you know apathy, a apathy can you know make bad things happen. That the enemy of progress is the inertia of progressives, as uh, Kevin Miles um, said at the at the conference. And we have to all remember that we have not only the power but the duty to say no more often. We've got to remember the power of no. There's a a few things that, that come across as being really important right now. One of them is that euthanasia issue, particularly if you're in a Victoria, if you're in Victoria, co uh, contacting your representatives to um, to urge them to make change. Um, another is in the area of um, marriage equality, which we're going to speak about um, shortly. It's another opportunity to contact federal representatives about um, your desire to see change in that area. And the other one is uh, the Council to Homeless Persons, which is our community partner for this week. They um, have a petition to call on the government to build another 100,000 homes to ease the homelessness crisis. Um, and I'd certainly encourage you to sign that as well. It was another great, inspiring day, and we've already booked the venue for next year, so put it in your diary. Human Rights 2018, Federation Square, Friday 20th of July. I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> we have a couple of issues to discuss today um, in, in Human Rights News, but um, before we do, one housekeeping note. Um, we are recording this podcast at lunchtime on Wednesday the 9th of August, so things may have changed by the time you listen to it. I think they're changing as we oh, speak, Mario. It feels like that. Um, first up, marriage equality. Um, we're in favour of it here at the Casson Centre. Most ALP politicians are in favour of it. Cross-bench pol politicians are in favour of it. Conservative politicians, the Australian people are in favour of it. Over 20 countries have legalised it. How hard can it be? Well, it should actually be really easy, but it's become really hard because the government, having failed to get legislation for a non-binding plebiscite through the parliament, and now under threat from a small number of conservative politicians... Who want, to, who want to table a Marriage Equality Act, uh, means the government this week is proposing a non-binding, non-compulsory, snail mail plebiscite. What even is that? Well, I think the whole point is the government believes that it has the inherent power to just run this plebiscite, so they don't actually need to get it through the parliament. Wait, wait, can I talk constitutional law? You sure, can please. talk constitutional Are law. Are you talking about 
executive power to spend without legislative backing? I think I might be. Oh, my goodness. Wow, intersectionality, constitutional powers. Yeah. What's going on? If you start Sarah and I arguing about the executive, it's going to be a well, long podcast. Well, why don't you tell us what the issue might be with well, regard the, to executive power? Okay, the issue is with executive power is since that case a couple of years ago by Williams, the High Court has said that the government can't just go ahead and spend money on various purposes because it feels like it. That spending has to be underpinned by legislation. So you can't just go ahead and do what, you know, Gough Whitlam wanted to do all those years ago and just distribute money to the regions or whatever. You have to actually underpin that with law. Now, if you're going to pass a law for a plebiscite, okay, that would enliven the use of that spending. But without such a law, where is the government getting the power to have this, you know, national opinion poll? Well, I think what they're going to try and argue is that that authority somehow exists, it's somehow embedded in some other statute. I think it's quite interesting. They actually want this to be run by the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, rather than the Australian Electoral Commission. Well, I have views on that too. Yeah, uh, well, we'll go to your views on that in a second, but in a way that just really that really strengthens the argument that, that this really is nothing more than a glorified opinion poll. Well, that, you know, and they're kind of even wrapping it up as statistics rather than, rather than a vote. Well, this is the thing. Under the ABS Act, the ABS is only entitled to conduct activities to do with statistics. And I'm not sure that taking a plebiscite or an opinion, you know, it's not a poll exactly, but an opinion something. A glorified opinion poll. Let's go with that. <laughs> an upgraded opinion poll. I don't think that that's going to amount to the definition of statistics as understood in, in the Census Act and in the ABS Act and all the other places that that appears. Um, it's, it's not taking a statistical analysis of the country. It's taking an opinion. And that's different. Statistics an opinion and an opinion of those who bother to return the post. And there's a lot of danger. There's a lot of worries by people that uh, the people who definitely will return um, the letters are people who are really exercised by this issue on mm. both sides. Mm. But there are a lot of people. Uh, I, I believe the majority of Australia is in favour of marriage equality. But I think there are a lot of people who are in favour who are not so animated by the issue that they'll actually return a letter. Mm. I mean, the fact is mm. people can be lazy. Mm. People can forget. So I've got, you know, I've got concerns about the issue itself. Mm -hmm. I've got concerns about the policy of running a plebiscite in this way. And I, now I've got concerns about an improper purpose and using the APS for, for something that it's not actually empowered to do. And I think as we speak, some of these issues are probably being raised right um, in the High Court right well, now. What are we doing here? Let's run down there and hear what the argument is. Let's say they actually managed to get a bill through Parliament for a voluntary snail mail plebiscite. I can't Would you say have that, any constitutional but, concerns? Well, but can I just say that seems ridiculous. Like if they can't get a if they can't get a bill through for a for a more proper plebiscite, I really can't see why the Senate would be swayed by this plebiscite. Mm. Like the only reason this has become even on the radar is because they've realised they can't get the idea of a plebiscite through the Senate. Um, so I just can't see. Yeah. I can't see any logic to the Senate allowing a bill for a postal plebiscite. Like I think if we have to go down the plebiscite route, and of course we don't, but you know, if I, I think the better plebiscite is actually the compulsory one, where we get a real gauge of what people think. So um, I, I, yeah, I, I just, I guess I dispute the the premise of the question. To conclude, then, if the, if they're going to go through without um, enabling legislation. Um, do you guys, as constitutional lawyers, you know, just at first glance have concerns that it may be unconstitutional? Yeah, I think it is unconstitutional for mm. the reasons that Melissa said. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, I, I reckon most things are unconstitutional. <laughs> no, no, actually what I'm, uh, there is a serious point there. Governments will traditionally try and push the envelope of what's permitted and what's not permitted, and it's up to advocates and activists and other commentators to push back against that and say, you know, where is the power that you are enacting this law or undertaking this, this expense or this action? Just because governments do stuff doesn't mean it's valid. You know, that's what we're teaching our students here. So let's see some of that in application. Yeah. But, you know, going to the High Court just, uh, you know, which is what uh, people are doing, this just, you know, kicks this, uh, kicks this issue down the road, keeps it on the, on the you know, keeps it in the public, um, in the public consciousness. And, you know, we've been hearing all week from the Liberal Party about how they want this issue to go away. They keep on making decisions which make sure it stays on the agenda and front of mind for everybody. It reminds me very much of a, the last government in crisis, the, the Gillard government, when their weakest issue was asylum seekers, but it constantly seemed to be the Gillard government who was bringing the issue up and putting it back on the front pages. It seems to be a problem for governments in crisis. Okay, there's one other issue um, we wanted to speak about, um, and that's the issue of public servants and free speech, which has rocketed into the um, public consciousness over the last week after the Australian Public Service Commission uh, released new guidelines for public servants make about how to make comment, or perhaps more correctly, how to not make public comment on social media um, to ensure that they're maintaining their impartiality. Um, uh, could I begin, uh, I, I did have a read of it, by saying I was really impressed by the plain English use in the guidelines, up to and including the use of the phrase, agencies often receive dobbins. Jobs. <laughs> Oh, Dobbins, what, the, oh, they dob uh, in a pub public servant in, yeah, who's, who's criticised. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who are those people? <laughs> who dob them in. Yeah, yeah who, <laughs> who does that? So, Sarah, um, what is this? To start off, um, are these new guidelines, are they, are they part of the Public Service Code of Conduct? Are they binding rules? What's going on? Well, um, allegedly they are. I mean, I think the uh, the Australian Public Service Code of Conduct is an implicit term of their contract of employment. Uh, and so uh, when they change, uh, in a sense, your contract changes. So I guess the way of enforcing it is through contract. Oh, okay. So I, I think these are just guidelines to interpret the... Yeah, but it's all, it. you know, becomes... But I think they are enforceable. That pe I mean, in fact, a few years ago, someone did effectively lose their job. Uh, it was a person who had a... Um, uh, a pseudonym on Twitter. Mm. Um, I'm not sure anybody really knew who this person was until it all broke into the media. And she um, was let go by the immigration department after criticising um, certain immigration policies. But uh, yeah, these these new um, these new regulations are going to be extremely draconian. Apparently, public servants can't even like a post now um, if it's critical of the government. And if they have even a closed Facebook page, they are supposed to delete comments on their page from their friends, which are critical of government policy. Um, allegedly because what the government says is the friend might then screenshot it and send it to everyone. I mean, of course, of course, that's what friends are going to do to people. <laughs> hey, um, with friends like these, who needs Facebook? But look, there's always been an obligation for public servants to behave in an apolitical manner, and that is that they give their advice, you know, fairly to the to their minister or their, their member of parliament or whoever it is. Which they still can, even if they like something on Facebook. That's right. I mean, it's quite a... Di giving, you know, proper advice, free of um, yeah, look, bias, I think... is, is one thing. Stopping people from communicating or being communicated to, which is what you're describing, is a whole other level. Oh. And, and I think it intersects with some more 
dare I say it, constitutional law issues. Well, it also intersects a lot with human rights. I mean, it's to my mind, this if, if this goes through, this is a breach of free speech. Uh, so, you know, for a start, where are the free speech warriors, um, you know, uh, to, to complain about this? We're here. Here we are. Uh, but, Melissa, you just raised the very interesting question of whether this might be constitutional, and I think what you're getting at is something we all have under the Constitution, something called the implied freedom of political communication. Um, now, I think that's actually been interpreted um, quite conservatively. It's not as it's not as you know big a right as it possibly could mm. be. Uh, look, would these laws breach that implied freedom? I tell you what, I'd really like to go to the High Court and find out because. Oh, well, you know, Bernard Gaynor, the committed Christian, is off to the High Court on Friday week with a special leave application to find out that exactly. So we are going to find out from the High Court. Really? Yes. Um, with regard to these new... Well, yes, because he was retrenched from being from the Army Reserve because of some of the comments he'd made um, that were, you know, at, well, shall I say outright offensive. And um, the Army Reserve retrenched him and he's been working his way through the courts for the last four years and is ending up before, before the High Court with a special leave application on the well, on the political communication issue. Yeah, it's maybe it sounds like it's a slightly different issue if he was sacked because of offence rather than, you know, just simple criticism. I do agree with you, though. I think the Bernard Gaynor case is going to be very, very interesting. The interesting thing, I think, that could arise if these public servants' provisions are challenged, and personally I hope they are one mm. day, is um, the interaction between the constitutional right and one's contract. That's because right. the argument that might be made is, well, you've waived your right. You've No one forced you to sign a contract. You've signed a contract, so you've got to abide by the requirements of well, the job. Sarah, can you contract yourself out of a constitutional right? Yeah, look, it, this is a difficult question. Uh, like, for example, in the United States, you sort of can sometimes. I mean, I don't think... Look, the United States is way ahead of this of us on mm. law on this type of issue, mm. and even there it's pretty confused. So I, I could not predict the way this one would go, which is one reason why, as a lawyer, uh, I'd really like um, the High Court to tell me. <laughs> There's a few things I noticed uh, reading the guidelines that I found interesting. Uh, one is that they're, you know, they're really trying to tamp down on you uh, as a public servant from, from posting your political opinion on anything, although they don't go that far. We say, you know, for example, um, Posting, it doesn't matter if you post after hours, it doesn't matter if it's on your own equipment, it doesn't matter if it's in private forums or via email to a friend, all of that would still be covered by mm. these rules. And what I thought, what I found interesting at the end of it, they said, but of course, you know, uh, in your private life, you can, you can hand out how to vote cards at election time. Really? Yeah, that so seems that, really anomalous to me. Well, I, I'm guessing that's a long-standing rule. Um, I, I don't know, but it's a, yeah, exactly. It seemed very weird that you go basically don't have an opinion on social media, but if you want to get photographed handing out how to vote cards for One Nation on election day, go your hardest. I think another interesting thing is I presume you will be able to to praise the government. Which means that uh, you can they have specifically say you can praise the government. Which yes. means you can have political speech as long as it all goes one way. Yeah. So I think that's interesting. Look, yeah. Marius, you're just getting to what I think is the absurd breadth of this, mm. and I have to say that to even introduce such regulations is not indicative of a con of a confident government if they're if they're worried about people liking stuff on Facebook. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and which it does cover, just liking stuff or joining a Facebook group. All right, so that's all we've got time for on news. Um, finally, to our, my favourite segment, where we name our human rights hero or villain of the week. Sarah, who's your uh, hero or villain? 
Okay, look, I tend to like to have heroes, but this week I am going to go for a villain, and my villain this week is, in fact, our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, and that is for two reasons. Uh, we all saw the transcript of the infamous phone call with Donald Trump earlier this week, and I think that, that um, it seemed to reveal, I thought, an extreme callousness towards human beings. Um, you know, he even raises the, uh, the, the potential for you know, for this US deal to become a farce by saying, look, you don't really have to take many if you adopt a really, really extreme version of vetting. Uh, it really, it was distressing to read because it was all about political perception and not about, you know, actual human beings. Um, I think it was really disappointing to see a lot of the media then go along with that and, you know, kind of, oh, look, you know, he's holding his own with Trump. Um, and, you know, that's that's been thrown into even, you know, greater tragic relief this week with the death of another man on Manus Island. Mm -hmm. uh, so I said there were two reasons. The other is, in my opinion, the, the spectacular lack of guts on marriage equality. Um, we know the Prime Minister is pro-marriage equality. We know he doesn't like the plebiscite. We know he thinks a postal plebiscite is absurd. And yet he just gets... Um, led by the nose and lets it happen. And I think at some point you just actually have to stand for something. So I'm sorry, Prime Minister, but this week you're my villain of the week. Um, uh, my hero of the week is David Coulthard. Um, he's a former Zimbabwean politician and opposition leader who last night spoke at a Casson Centre event in Melbourne. Um, and David actually spoke to the centre when he was last in Australia in 2005. And I joked with him last night that um, I really thought the whole Zimbabwe issue would be solved by now and <laughs> everything would be fine over there. But in fact, it's backsliding at a rapid rate. And David spent his whole life um, fighting for human rights in Zimbabwe. He's been a human rights lawyer. He's been an opposition politician. He was a member of the government of, of national unity. Um, but then eventually Mugabe and his cronies reasserted their full control in 2013 uh, and were back in full control of the government. And still now David, at 60 years old, is working to bring the opposition together to highlight his country's cause. Um, he flew in, he's doing uh, four, five capital cities, including Perth, uh, in five days. Um, and uh, he's, he's my hero of the week. That's a good one. All right, and finally, it's time for Did You See That? Where we all briefly mentioned one thing that's caught our eye, human rights or otherwise. So I'll go first. Uh, did you see that on the weekend, Donald Trump tweeted his thanks to a big fan of his on Twitter, Nicole Mincy, or pro-Trump45? Um, it turns out that uh, Nicole Mincy may in fact be a Russian operative or even a bot. I mean, why wouldn't she be? <laughs> yeah, it's just like Russian bots. Pro-Trump45 <laughs> is a strange Twitter name, really. It's just like, the Russians are everywhere. The man can't avoid it. Wherever he goes, whoever he retweets. And uh, it's interesting, Russian bots seem to be becoming even more important in bolstering pro-Trump stories. They've been very active over the last week, um, promoting the hashtag FireMcMaster, who's Trump's national security advisor. And the you know, hardcore pro-Trumpers think that he's a, uh, he's a sort of a uh, traitor in their midst. I just want to know why I never get any Russian bots. Following you? Yeah, well, tend. Man, nobody promotes my stuff. Oh, you don't know. You don't know who it might be. So my did you see that? Not a happy one. Americans own almost half the guns owned by civilians worldwide. See a problem in that, anyone? Well, it's pretty uh, interesting in the, you know, the context of Kevin Miles' talk this week about you know, fear and the role of guns you know, in US society all coming together to make that kind of catastrophe that is particularly, um, you know, the death of, um, you know, black people at the hands of police in America. Mm. 
Um, of course, police have guns, but they also fear that in any situation someone might pull out a gun and it That's leads it. to this kind of climate. Sarah? Okay, look, I have to say mine is far more trivial than either of yours. Did you see that? I saw Australian Survivor on Sunday night, (laughs) and it was spectacular. Uh, the, the, The tactics on Survivor, I haven't actually watched this show for about 10 years, and my God, they. I you take know, it it's got better in the intervening time. Oh, they just backstab each other all the time. I mean, they're just walking around. They've just got knives coming out everywhere. And uh, front step, back step. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know. It was just incredibly satisfying just watching someone get totally blindsided and voted off the island. Oh, I'd like to vote a few people off this island. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate the podcast as it helps others to find it and also share it through your networks. Uh, Today's podcast was edited by Gary.